fifth-generation Iowa farmer Zach Smith sees a future of farming that's different from the common theme of get big or get out. You know, I think when I was young, I just wanted to be big. And then the, when I saw kind of what the price of big is for rural areas and economies and the fact that if you're passionate about soil health, it's really, really hard to farm 30,000 acres and implement practices that don't uh, degrade soil systems. I just thought, you know, there's got to be a, a better way to look at this. A big part of his solution to many of the issues facing farming today is to figure out ways to reintegrate livestock back into cropping systems. We kind of got in that desperate time in 2020, you know, where prices were really low. It's like, well, we need to do something else and and not just sell a commodity. You know, that was the one thing we were trying to, how can you find a value add product that you can produce out here that isn't contingent on the Board of Trade? This led Zach to creating the stock cropper, which you heard about from his partner, Joe Bassett, back in episode 292. The idea is to autonomously move livestock and poultry between strips of corn and other crops. There's going to be two paths in agriculture in the future. There's going to be the path of the chase of commodity, low-cost production, grow as much as you can. And then there's going to be an alternative path where you're focused on trying to grow something that's more value-added. And that's really the space that I'm interested in. Farmer and stock cropper inventor Zach Smith on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week I get to sit down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode, in my opinion, really speaks to the core of what this show is all about. We look at the current trajectory of where agriculture is headed, identify some of the negative potential outcomes associated with that trajectory, and explore how people and technology can play a role in creating a better future for our industry. I'm excited to share today's conversation with Zach Smith. First, though, I want to take a minute to thank our presenting sponsor for this quarter, which is Merck Animal Health Ventures. Merck Animal Health Ventures is a premier investor in animal ag tech. They invest in companies creating the next generation of animal identification and monitoring technology to advance animal health, as well as new business models to create value from animal data. Merck Animal Health Ventures partners with early stage technology companies to successfully scale solutions for their customers which include livestock producers, veterinarians, and pet owners. For more information, check out the Merck Animal Health Ventures website, which we'll make sure we include in the show notes. And thank you so much to Merck for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, so now on to today's featured conversation with farmer and stock cropper co-founder Zach Smith. If you've listened to the episode with Joe Bassett, that's 292, or the recent episode we had with Paul Grieve of Pasture Bird, or if you've spent any time on Ag Twitter or Ag YouTube, you probably have an idea of what Stock Cropper is all about. But today's episode is going to go deeper into why these types of innovations are important. We talk about consolidation in ag and its impact on rural communities. Zach shares about his journey into soil health and how that's changed his operation and led him to the point that he felt it is critical to find ways to incorporate animals onto cropland. And we'll talk about these two sort of diverging paths for farming of being the low-cost producer versus being a value-added producer. A lot of great stuff, in my opinion, in today's episode that you're not going to want to miss. It used to be common practice for farmers to raise a diverse mix of animals and crops in a somewhat integrated system. 
Over the years, though, through technology and through policy changes, most farmers have become specialized. And today, the majority of our crops and the majority of our livestock are produced separate from each other. This has created the food system we know today, which is, in the United States at least, plentiful, abundant, cheap, and safe. But it also comes with other challenges that Zach and I are going to talk about. And there's a growing push to try to integrate more crops with more livestock for the sake of soil, the environment, and for rural economies. Stock Cropper is creating a system to help with this. Their first product is the world's first multi-species, solar-powered, electrically-driven autonomous mobile grazing system called the Cluster Cluck. Zach's going to talk a lot more about the system, the technology, and what this represents for the future of agriculture. Starting with what led him just two years ago to come up with this concept and take it to a prototype in just a few short months. Yeah, so... You know, today, like you're looking at commodity prices that, I mean, we have like $7 corn and two years ago we had $7 soybeans and like 275 corn. And I've spent the first 20 years of my life pretty much in the big ag space, worked in several different retail jobs on my, my own seed business, chemical business, consulting business for the last uh, five or six years now. And you know, when we were looking at this two years ago, it was like, why am I even farming anymore? Because uh, I'm well below cost of production. What am I doing wasting my time? I should be spending time on other things rather than spending time away from my family to do this. And that was really the push for me and uh, a couple other farmers to try to look at alternative ways to do it. Staying. We didn't want to give up. You know, that's why stock cropping was was started. And you know, while commodity prices are higher now, substantially, a lot of people say, well, why would you even consider doing this when you can get $7 for corn? Well, the reason is we might not be able to get fertilizer next year. And having a system that would give that autonomy back to the farmer compared to being so reliant on other forces from big ag, because big ag's, you know, push is to, I mean, it's just, it's been the same way. It's not something new as we've had a funnel of consolidation for the last, you know, 90 years, 100 years, probably, you know, where we're just fewer and fewer participants in the game. And I was interested in coming up with a system that could maybe flip that funnel upside down and require more people to be out on the land doing things like we used to have. You know, we used to have every farm was 160 acres. And uh, I did some math, you know, where in my county, there'd be potentially, you know, 1500 farm operations. And now we're down to maybe we maybe have 150 farm operations. And so it was just kind of seeing that path. You know, I think when I was young, I just wanted to be big. That was my my fantasy. And then the, when I saw kind of what the price of big is for rural areas and economies and the fact that if you're passionate about soil health, it's really, really hard to farm 30,000 acres and, and implement, you know, practices that don't uh, degrade soil systems. I just thought, you know, there's got to be a, a better way to look at this. And that's kind of how we got to this point. Right. And you mentioned kind of passionate about soil health. When did you kind of have that paradigm shift where, you know, oh, soil is actually the goal? Yeah. So I got into strip till back in the late 2000s uh, or being interested in it. But like soil health wasn't like the sexy new thing. It hadn't existed yet. I was just interested in like strip till because it looked really efficient. And I was sick of plowing the ground and not because I was maybe worried about losing the ground, but it was just like, I wanted to work with something I could go across the field 40 feet at a time instead of, you know, eight feet at a time. So, you know, I kind of stumbled into it that way. But then when you start to farm differently and you actually see what happens to the ground and that it actually changes and you can actually infiltrate water and you 
you can start to manage things so that your organic matter levels actually start to accumulate rather than degrade. Then the bells start clicking. And then that was about the time when the soil health piece came in. We had a, a prevent plant year that exposed us to cover crops in 2013 for the first time. And uh, once I saw that, I added that in, into the system and we've been doing that ever since. And so I've always been interested in this space and that's what I see like the stock crop are representing is, you know, kind of that next step and beyond. Because if you're really interested in soil health, you know, integration of livestock is one of the key pillars. And, you know, with everybody running around right now trying to sell carbon and all this stuff, nobody's talking about that. It's like, how can we get a trinket that we can dump out of a jug to solve this issue? And I really think if we're serious about this, we have to find uh, ways to integrate livestock back on the landscape, something other than dragging a 10,000 gallon manure tanker across the field in the end of the fall. Right. And so it sounds like for you, the first change on your farm was strip tillage. And how soon did you see results from that? And and what physically were you seeing? Be as specific as you can. Yeah. So within, uh, we strip tilled first in 2011, the fall of 11. And in the spring of 2012, I had side by side differences across the fence with water infiltration that first spring. Uh, where people had gone out and, you know, field cultivated a couple passes and then planted, you know, with big ponds of water. And we didn't have water standing anymore. And that's been consistent. I took over farming full-time in 2014. I've not lost a single acre to drown out since then. And we've gone through some really wet years here. But so these principles, uh, if you are willing to put the systems into place, they they definitely work. And I've definitely become a believer of them. Yeah. And then from there, it was the cover crops, you said, because of the prevent plant acres. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually to, to livestock. Yeah. The prevent plant kind of opened my eyes uh, to that. We grew some fantastic corn after we had covers on prevent plant ground in 2013, following in 2014. And I'm like, well, this is obviously the next step. And so I just made the decision to I'm going to start drilling covers every year behind the combine and try to continually feed feed the underground livestock. And then, you know, when we kind of got in that desperate time, in 2020, you know, where prices were really low, it's like, well, we need to do something else and, and not just sell a commodity. You know, that was the one thing we were trying to, how can you find a value add product that you can produce out here that isn't contingent on the board of trade? Right. I love that underground livestock. I like, I like that way to reference the biology in the soil. So did the wide row corn come first or did the wide row corn come because of the ability to run a stock cropper? Yeah, that's a good question. So I didn't explain that. So, and I, this is important for me to say. So, me getting into strip till and learning a lot in this space is due to a single individual, and his name's Sheldon Steve Murray. He's a good friend of mine, and uh, he, you know, as an ag engineer with background, and he farms about thirty miles north, and he helped me kind of start to understand strip till. But he was also playing around with strip intercropping about a decade ago, which got me to do it and kind of play with this edge effect. You know, where uh, you're basically maximizing, you know, light interception and and being able to pump more production in that outside row. We became really interested in that. We were actually, as far as I know, we were some of the first ones to experiment with like twin row 60 inch corn back in 2013 and 2014. Just this idea of, you know, what I've, I've said a lot of other places, the ability to kind of biohack your way into more production, you know, so that's where we kind of got interested in it. And then we kind of just let it sit on the table because we were kind of getting by in our system. And then when, you know, 270 corn came, we're like, all right, we have to bring this back and figure out how we can take this from the experimental stage to something that's actually tangible and real. 
Gotcha. Yeah. And so the, the edge effect is that basically the outside edge of a cornfield is going to get more sun and theoretically, you know, produce more or not. Maybe theoretically, you're finding that it does produce more. And so if you can put more space within the cornfield, you'll get more of those edges. Right. And so that was the idea when we experimented with the twin row 60 inch corn is like, could we create edges across an entire field? and then grow a cover crop or another crop underneath that. That was kind of the thought. But that's tough to incorporate livestock into unless it's at the very end of the year where you would graze it or something like that. But with the stock cropper, you know, the genius of that is that it's the ability to grow a cash crop and then have your livestock, you know, right next to it happening at the same time. So you're getting the benefit of the edge. You're getting the benefit of being able to produce something that's a non-commodity protein product and walk that value off the farm. So imagine we're planting 20 feet wide strips of corn and then 20 feet wide strips interlaced of an annual pasture. And so the idea of this system is that you're going to be moving across this in space and time. And so what I've learned is that I've had to plan mixes that match the animals for where they're going to be. So we usually start off the lane with a cool season mix, you know, so that gets up really quick. You can get out there fast. And then we switch the seeding further on where we know where we're going to be based off of the amount of movements of the barn to a warm season mix. And then we also want to have something that has the ability to regenerate so that we can come back and really hit that same space twice in a year. So what we try to do is set up basically a racetrack pattern in the field so the barn can go on this cycle. And we want to hit the vegetation quick and hard for a couple hours to impact it. And then the barn is going to autonomously move on and keep the animals always into fresh pasture, you know, not laying in their manure or anything like that or in, in the mud, constantly keep them on the march and then come back, you know, 40 to 45 days later and impact it again. Okay. Now, do you think that Maybe let's take an acre conventionally grown corn. If you were to grow an acre of just straight corn, what you would expect in terms of yield? And then what does it look like in terms of what the outputs are going to be from this stock cropper system with an acre of corn? Yeah. So what we would do is if we had uh, an acre of corn, you know, growing in between the strips here. So we have an acre of corn and then we would have an acre of livestock production. So, you know, in a normal system, if you just had monocrop corn across, you know, say a good yield in Iowa is like, say, 220, 230 bushels an acre for normal production. It's very, very easy in a system where you do intercropping to raise that, you know, depending on the year. And if things go well for you to raise that corn production by, you know, series of magnitude of, you know, maybe, you know, 50 to an additional 80 bushel an acre, if you really manage things to a T to take advantage of that extra light. So a substantial difference there, but then also on an acre of, you know, corresponding pasture right next to it, we're able to produce 10 to 12 pigs, uh, 250 to 300 chickens. And um, the first year we did a mix of about, uh, we had four goats and four sheep up front as kind of our are ruminant grazers uh, in the pattern. So we're able to produce a lot of livestock. And from a value standpoint, the value of what we can create in that space of an acre, if we're selling pasture-raised protein produced in this low-carbon footprint way, you know, we're not talking about $1,200 an acre of corn. We're talking about ten dollars to $15,000 an acre of premium protein product. Right. So if the holistic system, as far as outputs go, you just mentioned the, the number of animals, how much reduction in corn yield are you going to have to give up for that system, you know, if you were just to grow straight corn? I guess, well, so I probably haven't explained this well enough. I mean, really, the point of this system is not to grow corn to sell at the ethanol plant. 
it's like what we used to always do is you would produce grain not to burn at an ethanol plant. You produced it to like feed your livestock on your farm. You know, we used to walk the value off the farm. And so what this system is designed to do and the schematic works really well is to produce just enough of a feedstuff. So the following year, we can produce the feed to feed the monogastric non-ruminant animals like the pigs and the chickens that are in there. And that's really inherently where the value comes from. So, yeah, we're, we're not growing 160 acres of corn. Maybe we only have, you know, 80 and maybe it's not even 80 acres of corn because we need a protein product as well. So maybe it's field peas, maybe it's soybeans, uh, you know, something else into the mix. But this looks totally different than anything you see driving down the road. I mean, when you get into the numbers on this system, it's the amount of corn yield really starts to pale in comparison when you're seeing the value of all the other things that you're doing. You know, it's, I mean, the idea is, is that, you know, we want to make a closed loop system where basically, you know, we're producing our own fertility with the animals. We're producing our own feedstuff. We could have our own mill on the farm. So you look at the system now, I grow corn, it goes to an ethanol plant. Okay. They make ethanol, they make DDGs. The DDGs get trucked to a feedlot, you know, they feed it through a cow that, you know, blah, 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 blah. And you're just moving stuff all over the place. And so when we talk about like low carbon footprint farming systems, you know, we're all, everyone's trying to like latch onto these silly trinkets, you know, like carbon solutions in a jug like we have to find systems that are truly meaningful in actually reducing carbon footprint and when you're looking at what we're doing you know we're we're basically using the sun to move a machine across that is allowing animals to do the work that replacing all of these carbon intense applications and using epigenetics and the expression of plants in different arrangements to create a heck of a lot of value that most people in this egg space don't think about on a daily basis sure and talk about the epigenetics part because my limited knowledge of epigenetics before this is like you use a protein to change the gene expression without actually changing the underlying, you know, DNA. But epigenetics in this case, you're changing the gene expression by, I guess, the geometry of how it's grown. Yeah, we're, it's it's like that edge effect. We're just changing the venue and the arrangement. And when you do that, plants, you know, have a code inside them that tells them how to react to that. And so I don't claim to be an expert in epigenetics to be able to go much further than that. But I've, I've seen, you know, the impact is that if you give stuff space and change these things and you start to think about what's possible when you realize how important light is in these systems, you be able to start to unlock a lot of different ways to, to create value other than just growing corn or just growing soybeans across the field. Right. Okay. I love it. And so what are the extra inputs that you need other than the previous year's corn to feed the animals? Obviously, you need to get them water somehow. And is there some sort of like, you know, nutrient pack that you're adding to this? What are you offering the animals that you still need to bring in? You said it's minimal. Yeah. So like for the ruminant, you know, I guess I should explain the barn a little bit. So the, the barn system is designed so that we have uh, three or four different species of livestock and they're all segregated by design. So we have a grazing pen out front for our lawnmowers, our ruminants. So we've done cattle, we've done sheep and goats. Then we have pigs following them in a trailing pen. And then we have a set of chicken tractors that trail behind, you know, further from that. So they obviously need water. So the barns are designed to collect their own rainwater. So when it rains, we can actually fill on board the storage. Uh, if we don't get rain, then we need to probably come out and chore it uh, every two days is what it's designed for with additional feed and water. You know, for the pigs and the chickens, there's onboard storage for that so that we can get by for a couple days with having stuff out there. So, yeah, there is a need to chore. You know, it's not like this is just autonomous and there, you don't need farmers or anything like that's That's not the point of the system. So there is some some work that you're going to have to come out every couple of days and, and refuel these things to keep them moving. 
And then from a feed standpoint, you know, the question is, what do you have to add? I mean, we're just using, you know, feed mixes from the local mill, but the idea would be down, you know, the road that we would have our own feed grinder, you know, mixer on site where we would just make our own rations based off of what we were harvesting off the previous year that we had on the farm. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I understand for you, you had this successful career in ag business. What what was sort of the catalyst that shifted everything for you? Was, was there one experience or what kind of shifted things in your perspective? I don't think it was one thing. And I, you know, I had a great, I mean, the, the, the egg space that I've been in has created a ton of opportunity and value for me. It's just, I think the realization of, of the long-term impact and what is going to be left. I, though I don't think there was a single singular, you know, moment that occurred. It was just kind of growing up and seeing what the reality of what rural America is going to look like. You know, I drove across the country here. I went out to Ohio state two weeks ago and I took the back roads through like Illinois and and Indiana and it's kind of sad, you know, like you see some big grain farms and then you don't see much in between. And that's not the way that things used to be. And, you know, there's dollar generals at every town and that's what people are eating is that crap. And, and the more that I, I kind of am aware of it and think about it, kind of the bigger, bigger the issue becomes in, in my eyes. And, you know, I, I don't think that we're going to be able to, completely reverse that. But if we could do something to stop it or, you know, maybe slightly turn it around, that would be a major, a major win. But we've got to get a lot more people thinking in this space, uh, you know, not just outside of agriculture, but inside of agriculture. I think when you have conversations with people, I think a lot of people in ag see this stuff, they just don't know what to do about it. What's the alternative path? You know, I'd love to do this, but how do I do it? How do I go against the machine? And so maybe I'm, overly optimistic and trying to fight against that narrative. But, you know, it's kind of the decision I made. I told my wife, I want to work in a different direction for the future of ag the rest of my career. I'm halfway through, kind of had my midlife crisis. Now I'm going a different direction. No, I, I think it's a it's a great direction. I, I want to support it however I can. I am curious, one logistical question. In this system that you have, how many stock croppers would be the ideal amount? Yeah, great question. So, I came up with a schematic on an 80 acre field that I can relate it to probably best. So I would anticipate if we had a, a barns that were 20 feet wide that we would have, and and then the pattern with timing and grazing that you'd have to set up, that we would have probably somewhere between 30 to 40 stock cropper barns operating on an 80 acre field. So then you can scale that out to whatever acreage, you know, field size that you would want. It really comes down to how much forage do you have there? How many moves do you need to be making a day? I've built a whole calculator that, you know, basically tells you what the acreage requirement is. And I think, you know, if we have a year where it actually rains here in Iowa, I mean, I think I could uh, have, you know, one of our barns operating on like three quarters of an acre and being able to graze it two or three times a year and producing a lot of stuff off of that. So. And let's talk about, because you said like the point of this is not to remove the farmer. It's actually the opposite, right? And so, you know, it sounds like part of this is like, hey, is there a way we could make farming more profitable without needing to have thousands of acres? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, and I want to be clear about this point too. I mean, I'd love to see a system like this take over, but you know, I'm a realist too. And so there's going to be two paths in agriculture in the future. There's going to be the path of like, 
the chase of commodity, low-cost production, grow as much as you can. And then there's going to be an alternative path where you're focused on trying to grow uh, something that's more value-added. And that's really the space that I'm interested in. And I think, you know, I talked about the 160-acre increment. I mean, this is a system that I think if we can get our costs to where we think we can get them on these barns, that we can design a farming system that could market to consumer classes where you could make a living on 160 acres instead of needing 1,600 or 16,000. And so are we going to bring things back to where they were in 1953 when there was a family on every quarter section? No, I don't think so. But I'm very interested in the space of being able for those that, you know, maybe uh, want to be in production agriculture, but their family only owns 80 acres or 160. So can you afford to have a a $400,000 combine to farm that in the current paradigm? No, absolutely not. But if you could have a system where you could have equipment that could help you create value on that smaller acreage and a system to market that to people that want that, that's really what I'm interested in. Okay. That, no, that's great. Personally, that's what I'm really interested in as well. You know, I, I grew up on five acres. Uh, so like, <laughs> that's what got me into agriculture. Of course, that was never a full-time living. It will never probably be a full-time living. Uh, but that I am interested in how do you either make agriculture accessible to those who want to farm and aren't inheriting a bunch of ground and or, you know, those that just aren't at a major scale, still wanting a decent life, quality of life. Yeah. And that's the thing I want to be clear about the system. Like this started off as something like as an alternative production system, but I see this technology and the products that we're going to produce in the future being geared for what you just said. If somebody has five acres, great. That might be my number one demographic I go after when we launch this thing, especially coming out of the pandemic where you have people that, you know, food security, food prices through the roofs. Like I want to have something tangible, you know, that I can make sure that I've got meat in the freezer. And if you had something where people didn't have to build a shed or, you know, fences around the property that could just be essentially an animal protein Roomba on their farm, making better use rather than running a damn lawnmower, burning $5 gas this summer, like actually make protein you know, and then get involved in that process yourself and uh, develop your own autonomy. And I think there's a lot more, you know, what's going to happen with the craziness of the world right now. I think a lot of people are going to be looking for that in the next year, hundred percent. So. Yeah, absolutely. And my understanding is right now you've been marketing these uh, locally and kind of getting them processed yourself. You know, obviously that part of the supply chain needs to sort of grow with products like this. And I, th I think it will, uh, but maybe talk about that uh, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest hurdle to all of this stuff. I mean, this, this stuff sounds cool and it's fine and dandy. And when I tell the system to people, it's always, this is great, but what are we going to do with the meat? And that's the issue. And I think it is going to take uh, a ton of change. This isn't going to be something that, you know, in the next few years, even we're going to, you know, have something where we could have a whole network of these things feeding it, at least right now. But, you know, the groundwork is being laid with some of the funding things that are coming out from USDA, you know, trying to get more of this regional, you know, meat processing set up done. And it's been a challenge, you know, to this point, you know, even for us to, to find spots. I've done a lot of the butchering, you know, myself. I've been doing that work for the last 10 years. So I've gained that skill set. But I think uh, it's going to take, you know, again, I go back to the space of if you can't find a processor, make processors. And so, like, if you've got five acres and you want to grow your own protein, but you can't find a butcher, why don't you become the butcher, you know, and what does that look like? Because that's something I've done. It's really easy and accessible and it's a lot less intimidating if people are interested in that space. And I'm interested in from start to finish connecting, especially more people in urban areas with the realities of food production and engaging them and enabling them to be part of that entire process. 
And then the other argument that comes up often too is like, is this really something that you could scale, you know, to produce, you know, regenerative egg could never feed the world. Well, you know, I did some math yesterday in prep for this and like with the stocking rate just on pigs, we grow about 25 million pigs in Iowa annually, 25, 26. I would only need 20 counties out of the 99 of production in Iowa that would go to a, a stock cropping system. So producing 50% of the land for feed and 50% for livestock and still have a lot of counties left over where we could just maybe pasture graze cattle or something like that, you know, because I'm very, very sensitive to this whole ethanol situation. One out of every two, you know, bushels in Iowa goes into ethanol and there's all this pressure, you know, outside of the agricultural community for, you know, what is going to become of that. And I don't like the way that feels. And, you know, we may very quickly be back to a position where we're, you know, needing just to produce uh, a feedstuff for the livestock like we were, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's not a conversation most of ag wants to have, uh, but it's something that ought, ought to be seriously considered. And what is the strategy if the ethanol market isn't there to the extent it's there today? Talk about where you are today. You have created the prototype really quickly. 2020 was when the idea was hatched, I understand, in a Twitter DM. Talk about where you are today. Yeah, so we uh, we hatched it February 9th of 2020 and whiteboard in March, uh, prototype in June. Uh, the first prototype was not autonomous. We just had a, an electric winch that moved it across uh, the field at that point. Fast forward to a year later and attracting a lot more attention and people around us ended up striking a deal with a guest you just had on the podcast a little while back, Joe Bassett from Dawn Equipment, who has just been an ideal partner for me in this space and is aligned in what he's really passionate about in developing in this ag space. So I signed a deal with them to be kind of our exclusive manufacturer and engineering provider for Stock Cropper Inc. And so when we go to sell these Stock Cropper barns, they will be you know engineered and and uh, manufactured by Don Equipment uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so so where we're at now is uh, when we entered into that agreement, I put the charge on them as like, okay, boys, I need you to actually do this autonomous piece because you guys are the brains uh, that you know can have the connection. And so last year, we made what we call the Cluster Cluck Nano. Uh, we had solar panels on top with batteries on board with electric motors, and we created an app to drive the thing through through the field so it was programmable. And the only piece that we have not conquered yet is the uh, the automatic guidance, and that's a, that's a tougher solution. So we're still working on that right now. Uh, but we actually had a design session this last weekend in Milwaukee, and it went really well. And I think we're on the path where we're going to crack that nut here, so that this spring we'll be able to actually produce and deliver a number of these uh, that will hopefully be able to be completely autonomous, be given a path a programmable schedule and move animals safely through confined spaces. Very cool. And do you know what the initial price point will be and or what you think the price point will ultimately be? It's hard to say. We didn't get to that point this weekend with our materials uh, list, so it's still pretty fresh. But my this initial prototype, I think um, I'm hoping that we're going to be able to do that somewhere around $10,000. Now, that is fluctuating substantially with the cost of materials and like how screwed up the supply chain is right now. But, you know, and that's for a relatively small version. But I think if we can just get the kinks out of figuring like what are what is the least amount of materials that we can put in to confine animals, be strong enough to move, especially after this last weekend and sessions I had, I'm really, really encouraged. I think we're, you know, 
it can't go fast enough for me right now, but I mean, I'm bootstrapping this thing uh, along with Joe and, you know, I only have so many resources right now to do it, but we've come a long way in two years or really quickly. And I'm really proud of that. And uh, I'm really excited about what I think we're, you know, given another year or so where we're going to be with understanding on, on how to make this work. Right. How much, and I know it's, it's, it's been new, it's been two years, but how much have you been able to reduce your fertilizer? Yeah. So, you know, I think the, one of the things that I looked at with the stock and rates animals that we had was like, what are we actually like producing out the back of the animals? And it's very, very close to actual removal rates for the crop uh, with the exception of uh, nitrogen. So we're probably a little bit light on nitrogen. So I think a conservative if you're growing corn, I should say, and you know, which needs additional nitrogen. But I, I think, gosh, we could reduce 50 to, you know, maybe 60, 75% of applied nitrogen. That's, that's a complete, you know, shoot from the hip guess at this point. But just knowing what output is going to be coming out the back of the animals, I think that's, that's realistic. And, you know, the nice thing, I mean, talking about the nutrients and how we do manure and conventional systems, like, you know, we're applying these nutrients into a living cover. So this isn't going out on barren dirt in the end of November in Iowa, like most, you know, manure is applied. It's going to be tied up. It's not going to be something that's subject to loss immediately. And it's hopefully going to be available and cycle back the next year, you know, and that's that's another aspect of this too. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've mentioned the benefits in your soil over time, you know, of water infiltration, uh, this one of reducing the need for external inputs. And then, of course, the increase in revenue from selling pastured livestock. Are there other benefits to your system in general that you're seeing either in your soil or in the bottom line? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, like, and I don't know this to be true yet. And there's there's been a lot of things in the news right now about, you know, kind of doubting the actual carbon sequestration potential for agriculture. But I want to come up with a system that actually does it. And I'm working toward finding partners to help come in and validate what we're doing. But yeah, I want to, you know, just by changing my farming systems and going to strip till and cover crops without livestock and with like still growing corn and soybeans, which are uh, that rotation, you know, uh, loses about a thousand pounds of soil carbon a year. So just by switching those things up without having livestock, I've gained 1.1% of organic matter on my farm over the last you know, 10 years. So that's a lot. Yeah, that's worth another acre inch of water, you know, holding capacity. So we're going into potentially another drought year here in Iowa. And like, what is that worth? You know, that's the, that's the thing. I think, I think farmers have a poor understanding on how important organic matter, you know, which has a foundation in carbon is. If you're running a yield monitor across the combine, where do you get your biggest yields? It's where you have the most carbon. It's where there's the most soil. So like we should be driven in these systems and our motivations to to fix as much of this as possible. And that's why I'm excited about the system is that not only do we have the potential to do that, but we have the potential to actually grow like diversity in the soil microbiology. We're going to have not only a multitude of plants growing, which have benefits outside of just a monocrop system, but we have a multitude of livestock gut biomes, you know, which are all different and all contribute things. And so when you're going from just growing corn and beans to potentially having seven, eight, nine, ten different species of both plants and animals on the field, I have to be bullish on where that ends up in five to 10 years of, of evaluating that, or at least I want to be anyway. So. Where, where are you finding the animals? Is that difficult at all? You probably want the ideal age, size, type of animal at the start of the growing season because these aren't. This isn't a twelve-month 
I wouldn't think animal husbandry project. No, so it isn't. I mean, at least right now, like I've, I don't have the facilities myself to background animals year round. So I've just been buying feeder pigs, uh, you know, actually from uh, uh, my original inventor with it, Sheldon, Steve Murray. He, uh, he's still one of the last independent guys uh, around. And then I've been getting chickens from, uh, uh, from Hoover's Hatchery in, in Red Iowa. And, you know, that's, that's fairly just day, easy. Just day old chickens? Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't put them directly into the system. I, I put them in a, like a starter pen for the first two weeks. Otherwise uh, they're, they're small enough. They can actually get out underneath the pen if there's any caps. So it works better to have them a little bit bigger, but, uh, but then yeah, uh, sheep and goats. I mean, I'm on an experimental basis. So I'm buying relatively small amounts of animals. Uh, so I'm just buying stuff, you know, relatively locally here. Now that is a challenge. And a lot of people said, well, what do you do in this system in, in reality? Well, uh, I think you do have to be a backgrounder, you know, at that point, if you want to be, you know, truly profitable. And so you need something to do in the wintertime, you would have to have the facilities to, you know, background your, you know, your own animals, or maybe it creates an opportunity for somebody that doesn't want to stock crop, but wants to be a feeder farm for a system like this, you know, we, we have so little like independent, you know, production, especially like in you know, the, the pork industry that's left in producing these things, you know, I think there's a real opportunity to put some people that still have these skill sets back into place, uh, background and force too. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I love that because that shows kind of some of the tangential positive ripple effects from this, which is really cool. It creates an opportunity for some, you know, some kid who's not going to be big enough or doesn't want to vertically integrate, but maybe wants to raise some pigs to sell to stock croppers. That's cool. Zach, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. Uh, send people to stockcropper.com. Is that the best place? And then, of course, follow you on social media. Yeah, stockcropper.com. We're going to be actually relaunching our website here in the next, uh, uh, before spring happens. Uh, so check that out and uh, we'll have more information on there. And then, uh, you know, the best way to follow me is to follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm sure you put that in the show notes, but at Zebulus Prime uh, is my Twitter handle. And then uh, if you want to see throughout the growing season, I put out a YouTube episode usually every week to kind of share the experience of what people uh, are having. And if anybody's really interested, you can reach out to me at uh, the stockcropper at gmail.com. And, you know, I'm totally open and transparent to whoever wants to come and look at what we're doing. If you want to come out and see our plot work, we'll have a field day later this summer. I'm kind of an open book. I'm just interested in sharing and moving this concept further ahead. Well, you heard him there. And thank you so much to Zach for sharing. I'll make sure we include links to all of that in the show notes. And also, I want to thank those of you who continue to leave ratings and reviews for this show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I uh, recently saw this one from Nick FN that says, must listen for ag tech. Tim brings a tremendous amount of knowledge and value and great topics for the future of agriculture. Thank you, Nick, and all of you who continue to help us promote and share this show with others. It makes a world of difference. And thanks so much for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Oh,